Hello everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit, welcome to a very, very special episode of this podcast. It's a world exclusive, it's got the story behind one of the more remarkable archaeological discoveries of recent years from the Second World War. This is it. It's been very exciting to get involved in this. It's one of those projects that when I started out this podcast, I never believed that I'd be lucky enough to uh, to be covering something like this and reporting it to you and telling you guys this story. I'm standing here in Alderney next to a, a Roman fort. I'm on the, the very east coast of Alderney. I can see the Cotton Town Peninsula. I can see the, the bit of Normandy that sticks up and tipped by the port of Cherbourg off the sun rising behind the cotton town it's early in the morning and i'm standing next to uh, this is the interesting thing about the channel islands there's lots of rather wonderful overlooked bits of history here i'm standing next to a roman fort one of the most upstanding roman ruins that i can think of really anywhere in in the channel islands or in, in the british isles it's a it's a roman fort that's of the classic playing card shape the walls are a good three or four metres high. It's on an important position overlooking this wide, gently sloping beach that it overlooks down to the sea. Uh, and inside this fort, it's been the subject of a lot of archaeological study recently, and it's confirmed that it is in fact Roman, with, with Georgian additions to the tops of the walls. Uh, and inside the fort, the, the Germans built uh, pillbox here when they occupied this island between 1940 and 1945. So there's <laughs> evidence of military use here from the Romans, through to the early modern period, through right up to the Second World War. Fascinating stuff. I am here on Alderney because I have got a story for you, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, I have. It's a story of the occupation of this island, but also its legacy. One of the great things about doing this job is you get a lot of messages from people contacting you out of the blue, metal detectors, people that found things, archaeologists and academics who are opening up coffins, uh, announcing new bits of research. And this was one that I couldn't say no to. A group of divers have discovered that in a quarry, a flooded quarry in Alderney, there is a whole mound of Second World War German military equipment. It's a graveyard of German military hardware. And I'm here now to dive, to look into that and to to give this story wider attention. There will be, when this podcast goes out, there will be an accompanying documentary on History Hit TV. Uh, We have been working with the islands of Guernsey. Alderney is part of the Ballywick of Guernsey. So the islands of Guernsey uh, to look at some of their Second World War heritage. And they have helped us produce a documentary that is available on historyhit.tv. If you are listening to this episode and use the code POD6, P-O-D-6, you get six weeks for free watching History Hit TV. So you can watch this documentary, you can watch all the other content on the channel, frankly, absolutely for free. What a ridiculous offer, but there we go. In the meantime, enjoy the secrets of the quarry. I feel the hand of history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change the world. Right, welcome back to Alderney, everybody. It is one of the Channel Islands. Now, I am 
standing looking up at a mighty artillery spotting tower, a huge concrete spotting tower on top of a prominent hill. It was used to uh, call down artillery fire, to um, sight artillery fire, and it would have been aimed at an, an enemy fleet that would have been approaching these islands. In Hitler's fever dreams, the British were going to try and recapture these islands and his uh, artillery, his guns, uh, and his garrison here were going to fight them back. Uh, it never happened. The British left the German garrison on here to rot on the vine, and they did not get liberated until right just the very last day or two of the Second World War. They were liberated months after France, Belgium, Holland. Uh, and so uh, and there was a, a winter of terrible hardship and famine for the people who lived on these islands in 1944-45. But anyway, thousands of garrison troops were uh, posted here. I'm German troops. I'd much rather be here than in Stalingrad, I'll tell you that much. Uh, and of course, thousands and thousands of forced labourers as well. And, and these islands were turned into fortresses by Hitler. They were incorporated at gigantic expense into the kind of Atlantic wall concept. So this kind of line of steel and concrete that would guard the western coasts of Europe from amphibious assault. Some local people were brave enough to resist the, uh, the Nazi occupiers and some of them ended up in death camps uh, around the Third Reich, not to be forgotten. Smaller islands like Sark, like Herm, suffered less during the occupation. Today, I visited those islands, there's barely a trace of the, uh, the, the war years. But Alderney is the northernmost island, uh, and it was transformed by the occupation. It left an indelible mark on, on the landscape here. Its population was evacuated, thus it was a kind of blank slate for the, for the German occupiers. And forced labourers were brought here in big numbers to work on the fortifications. There were brutal conditions. Hundreds of them died. As a result of the population being evacuated, little is actually known about what life was like here during the war, and there's lurid myths and rumours that have circulated. I have managed to track down one of the few islanders that was born here, uh, and remembers the outbreak of the war, and then being evacuated, and in fact returning as well to a very changed landscape at the end of the war. Uh, her name is Beda Thompson. How old were you? I was 12 in the March, and we left in the June. So March 1940, you were 12? Yeah. And what was the first you heard that things were going badly on the continent and you might have to leave your homes? Well, we kept hearing that some French um, refugees had come into the, into the harbour uh, and that, um, you know, the officials, they were sort of all down there. And that, if I got it right, they were sending them on to Guernsey because they, they, they were nearing, the Germans were nearing Cherbourg. And so that's not the first we knew about it. Well, you know, at least I did, but things were pretty rough. And then all, cause then all the uh, soldiers had gone, because we had soldiers stationed here, and they'd all gone. And so we knew, but didn't dream about having been evacuated or anything. No. Well, we just didn't know. We were just going away for safety, because the Germans were coming sort of thing. And we went back to school and we were taken by bus down to the harbour. Did, did you imagine you wouldn't see it again for years? No. Well, he said it didn't enter my head what was what. Was what. And the last words, I might give way later on, the last words my mother said to, uh, said to her, now don't Ever let your little sister always keep your little sister. 
Look after your little sister. Never apart. Never be apart. And I, we, uh, I kept my word. Because they tried to part us in England, you know, to go to different foster homes. Mm. And I said, no. My mother said, we mustn't be parted. And I still call her my little sister now, to earn that most annoyance. <laughs> no, they wouldn't come down. We say goodbye at the door, at, um, on the steps. There's uh, Devonshire House, which sure. is number one. But the worst part was Uncle, oh, Uncle Archie <sighs> standing on some crates, waving goodbye when they were uh, singing um, Old Anxine. And I can't stand that bloody song to this day. And so we were down in Guernsey for two nights. Uh, and then we went to Weymouth. We went from Weymouth to um, a, a picture house of some sort. We were given mugs of tea and sandwiches. We got on a train. The next thing, after many hours, we landed up in Rochdale, up there. We went to a place called Wardle, which was and in one of Gracie Fields. She had some cottages or home. We stayed there for two or three weeks. And then from there, we went to Greenmount in Lancashire, and we stayed there for the rest of the war. My parents, they left on the Sunday, and they landed up in Glasgow. Yeah, it was that rough, and apparently um, we hugged the coast of France, whatever that meant. So instead of coming like this to England, for, to, from England to all, we come sort of that way, and we come in from the lighthouse. Instead of making for the breakwater, we come in that way. And then somebody said, oh, there's the lighthouse. And people were going, the men, like, looking. And of course, I said, I want to have a look as well. So my father had to put his arms his ha underneath my armpits to steady me to walk to the front of the boat so I could see the lighthouse flashing and that. And then we come along from the, the back of the lighthouse and that, and we got nearly, oh, we, we were not into Bray, we were round about Sawyer Bay. And what do you remember? What do you remember about coming ashore? Well, as soon as we got on shore, I looked up, because the old crusher was still there, I looked up and I just said, home. And it was like two great big blocks, heavy blocks on my shoulder, lifted like that. Why? Why did that happen? It was just like two heavy blocks there, and they just went like that. And if we looked up to the, um, sort of the crusher, then we had to wait um, for some, the lorries to come down. And I didn't know at that time George was in one of them. And um, we'd, uh, they took us up to what was the Grand Hotel, rat infested, there. What did the town, the, the island look like? Terrible, very depressing. Bleak. Awful. But we were glad to be home. 
but it was in a terrible. They'd, I mean, all da down uh, down there by um, where Bray Beach Hotel is, that was all derelict. They were all just shells and all the rest of it. And a lot of the island was as well. And meanwhile, the island was covered in concrete. Yeah, with all these blinking things, all these what you call bunkers. And my grandfather, after we'd been home a few days, and he worked all his life out in the quarries, out Moni, there, and then in the harbour, on the breakwater, that sort of stuff. And he came back laughing one day. Mum said, what's up, Pa? He said, I never thought there'd come a day I'd alternate when I'd be lost. And he'd been out there with all the German bunkers. He was going, you know, he, could, he was like in a maze. He couldn't find, find his way out for some time. And as he said, I never thought there'd be a day, come a day, that I'll get lost. Beda's house is a snug little cottage overlooking the sea, and we sat there behind her, stout, double-glazing, warm and cosy, even though outside the wind was battering the coast, the southwesterly gales were roaring up the channel. And sitting in 2019, chatting with her there, just sound like the events that she was describing were from a fairy tale, fantasy, make-believe. And yet you're reminded of the truth of those stories, not just through her words, but also because out the window you can spot the lumpy outlines of concrete beach defences built during those wartime years. So, next I talk to a local Alderney institution. He's a historian, walking encyclopedia, Trevor Davenport. Trevor, why did the Germans put so much war material, so many fortifications on this tiny little island? Well, it's one of these questions that's been asked <laughs> since the war. Um, the normal answer is usually that Hitler was so obsessed with capturing British territory, namely the Channel Islands, um, that it was a big propaganda thing for him. And he, he decided he was going to keep them. When he'd won the war, they would remain as German islands. And uh, whereas, of course, Britain would go back under a puppet government to Britain, France to France, but these were going to remain as German islands. But originally, he really had no particular uh, plans to fortify them as he did uh, because uh, he was going to capture Britain and they would become German islands and he would eventually fortify them. But originally, it was going to be this strength through joy. They were going to send all the workers over for holidays. Uh, conceivably, it might have been, the Channel Islands might have been of some use to uh, the invasion um, of Britain. But why did he fortify them as much as he did? The general answer is that it was Hitler's obsession. But I think there's a bit more to it than that. And in fact, he only fortified them 40% to 50% of what he intended to do. I mean, originally, each, each island was going to have 12-inch guns. In fact, only ended up with, um, no, 15-inch guns, and only ended up with one battery in Guernsey, which was 12-inch guns of battery mirrors. So the original plans were actually modified. But Alderney is so heavily fortified because, one, it was small, two, the population had basically left, and so he could do what he wanted. And whereas if you look at Guernsey and Jersey, most of their fortifications are restricted to the coasts. Well, so are Ordinary's, but Ordinary's coast is only about half a mile wide in parts. So, of course, it, it seemed to be a lot more. But for the size of it, 
um, it was fortified more intensely than the other islands. I mean, a prime example is if you look at the coverage, if you like on a square kilometre basis, there was the coverage of the anti-aircraft guns were three times Jersey and twice of Guernsey, because they were much bigger, so that was the reason why. And he had a free hand, and they basically fortified the whole island, and you could stand from one position, whether it was a flat gun position, or whether it was a battery, or whether it was a strong point or a resistance nest, and almost fire a catapult shot to the next one. They were that close, within hundreds of meters of each other, less than hundreds of meters of each other. Well, after the Normandy invasion, uh, of course, the Channel Islands were isolated, and uh, the people in Orderney were starving, the Germans over here were starving, then, it was soon after that, they finally got rid of all the forced labourers who were over here. There were very few left at the end, less than a thousand. And most of them were shipped off via Guernsey and Jersey down to France um, to carry on the work, which was construction. And the Germans were left isolated. But, of course, they were not, the guns were still being used. Anti-aircraft guns were being used constantly, as were the artillery batteries when anything got in their way, they decided to fire at them. And particularly once uh, Normandy was occupied by the Americans, the ordinary batteries did fire at the Cotentin Peninsula. But there was this mass of hardware that was left here. And finally, when the surrender occurred, there was, it was an impossibility for the people to come back. And apart from that, once they were isolated in June, they were running out of coal, they were running out of uh, any form of firewood. So that is when they started to rip the roofs off the houses and just take the rafters out and use them for burn. And there were whole swathes of ordinary houses over here that were just ruined. And even in December 45, six months after the surrender of um, the Germans, people came back and they still had no roofs on their houses. It was a terrible situation for them. And on top of that, what you couldn't come back, the whole island was full of mines, barbed wire, guns, artillery, everything else there was to be seen um, that was in you know, a war footing. And so from the period from the 16th of April through to the return of the islanders, the engineers were over here with German prisoners cleaning up the island, but they really never cleaned it up fully. And this is where it comes into our quarry. Uh, we have photographs of landing craft being just loaded up with 88 mil flak ammunition in boxes. But this was all taken out with a lot of the smaller weaponry and probably dumped in the herd deep. We don't know exactly because they probably never kept exact records of it, but most of the guns were left that we know of, and some of them were here after the return of the islanders and their photographs of them. The islanders, some are still alive now as children playing on them. But it brings us to this quarry. Right, and I'm standing beside the port of Alderney. Massive breakwater there built by the Victorians when they're thinking about basing the entire Channel Fleet here. That's what you call trolling the French, the mighty Channel Fleet of the hegemonic Royal Navy of the 19th century. Mere handful of miles away from Cherbourg. I mean, massive. It never happened because ships changed. The design, everything was evolving so fast that Alderney and the harbour and the forts that I can see became pretty much obsolete the minute they were, before they were even finished. I'm standing here looking out at the sea and 
really just meters inland to my left now is this quarry. The, the stone of which was used to create some of that breakwater and these forts that surround uh, me. But this quarry now is flooded. I'm looking down, it's quite murky waters. And I can see bits of detritus along the edge as a sort of tetrahedral, you know, you imagine one of those sort of um, obstacle things, the classic, the iconic obstacle thing that you see on the D-Day beaches. And uh, there's some, looks like there's some barbed wire there as well. And they are little hints that below the surface, there is a whole lot more. And this is the quarry that if local folklore is right, contains huge amounts of Second World War German equipment, which was left behind on the island of Alderney when it was liberated in 1945. The British had no idea what to do with it at all, and they decided to just basically bulldoze it into this quarry. That is the story. One or two divers have been in. Now it's my turn to see if I can corroborate that for myself. I think probably because of the fact there were so few if any eyewitnesses to what happened on Oldney during the war, rumours have swirled around since the day it was liberated. And many concern the kind of ghoulish and vastly exaggerated stories about the treatment of the forced labourers. But some of these stories are concerned with the hidden caches of wartime gear. And Bida told me about some of them. Speaking of quarries, do you remember anyone, do you remember people saying they'd thrown lots of German equipment into the quarry? Well, into this one, yeah. Yeah, yeah we did uh, hear about it. Well, and did you ever see it? Did they, they emptied it out a bit and took some things out, did they? they? they yes. But apparently it goes deeper than what I thought because they say there's still stuff right down. Historian Trevor Davenport told me what the records do show. Well, after the war when everybody came back, uh, they built a new power station and the water in the quarry was used for cooling the electricity generators. But... Prior to them coming back, when the engineers were over cleaning up the island, they had been dumping stuff in there. You could see it. And there were, for instance, you can see barbed wire. You can see some tank traps. They're still visible now. And it was then suggested that perhaps there was a lot of other stuff which they could see just below the surface, which had been dumped in 1945 before the islanders came back. Yeah, why did you, why did you think there was anything in the quarry? In the late 40s and early 50s, and particularly in the early 50s, there was a big scrap drive over here. I mean, firstly, of course, after the war, much of the hardware was taken, and we know it was dumped in the herd deep. Um, and what was dumped uh, in that quarry, we didn't know. But it was always suspected that a lot of stuff had been dumped in there. So in the 50s, I think it was, I forget the name of the company, it was a Guernsey company, came over and supposedly at great expense, pumped the quarry out. And there are stories, been circular routing ordinary as long as I can remember. Each one, there was, there's a basic story, but they all vary. And there is no question at all, the one that seems to come up every time is that after the quarry was pumped out, they were looking for scrap, there were four tank turrets, a four tanks in there, First World War French tanks. And as that came up, they got one of them up, they supposedly got it working again, and that helped clear some of the other stuff out. And then a lot of stuff, but we don't know which and what, was actually supposedly taken away, put into a, a special uh, landing craft for the purpose. And after that, we don't know what happened to it, because most of the people who tell us these stories are either dead or rather old now. And you can, there is absolutely no question at all. A lot of stuff was, no question was dumped in that quarry. 
And we know at one stage there were four tanks there, and so there could be other stuff as well. So there's lots of stories, lots of rumours. Do we have any hard evidence about what might be down there? Well, this photograph here shows taken, once taken in the 1950s, and I've put squares around it. You can see here, there's a, an FT-17 on its side. Yeah. There is an upside down, it looks like an FT-17, I don't know, because we can only see the tracks. There is one upside down, there's its turret, there's the tracks, and there's another one on its side, and that's possibly another one. So these were, but the story goes that they were possibly taken out. Uh, one was got working again, and the other three, and possibly that one was, was sent for scrap. But other stories say they were left in there. So this is in the 1950s when it was drained during a scrap drive. Correct. There's a lot of stuff in there. If you see here, there's certainly one, two, three, four tanks. That's one that's on its side. That's upside down, you can see the tracks. There's one lying on its side, but upside down, the turret is there. And there's another one lying on its side and the turret is there. And this might be a fifth one, but it's difficult to it say. It might be a half track, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. That looks like a little car or something. Yeah. But probably after this too, there is some post-war stuff in, dumped in there too. Mm. So that will be lying on top. So if you dive at the moment, you're actually quite often looking at post-World War mm. stuff. And so you'd have to remove that to see what's underneath. So there's only one way to work out what's down there, everybody. And so next I'm heading over to talk to local history enthusiast, diving adventurer, Simon Livesey. He's one of the team of divers who tipped me off about this story. And I'm at the quarry now, and I'm gonna meet him. So this is the quarry. This is, here you are. It's a, pretty, uh, it's a pretty incredible place. Um, we've only just started looking at what's in here. We had an inkling of what was in here, which is just amazing. And we've done a couple of dives, but I mean, what's down there is quite extraordinary. I mean, cars, buses. I think I've seen a searchlight. I think we've seen some tank tracks. Um, all sorts of things. There's just so much down there. I mean, obviously visibility isn't great and it's, it's, it's quite dark. You need some pretty strong lights. You're going to find it interesting when you when you go in, but um, yeah, it's it's a fascinating dive. So they chucked it all in the quarry. They filled the quarry up, and it's been like that ever since. Been yep, full of fresh water because it's the it's been cooling the uh, generators up in the all in the electricity building for the last you know God knows how long. So yeah, that's actually a swimming pool rather than uh, salt water. And so, so you think the stuff down there won't have been corroded too badly? It's not as corroded as badly as it might be if it was in seawater, definitely not, no. I mean, there's some really interesting things down there. I mean, I, when I first dived down there, I actually landed on the top of a bus, which was a bit of a shock, but <laughs> yeah, incredible. And there, there is a bus down there. So you have been diving the Channel Islands, you've been recovering Second World War weapons and objects. Have you ever seen anything like this before? No, it's just absolutely extraordinary what's down there. I mean, it's, and it's, there's just so much. I mean, it's, it's endless. You went to nine metres. How deep do we think the quarry is? Oh, it's 25 metres deep. What? Yeah, it's so 25 metres deep. You well, haven't even been halfway down? Oh, God, no. We've barely been further than this little area here. So, so we haven't done any of this side, any of that, any, anything. And when you went down for the first time, did what you saw exceed your expectations? Oh, yes, yeah. Totally. I mean, it's, it's, it's mad. <laughs> it's incredible. Well, I'm very excited. You're, you're going to send yeah, me Yeah, you're going to see it now, so you're going in.
Uh, it's a beautiful morning here in Alderney. Uh, the, the sun is shining. I'm walking along the beach. It's not a bad commute. I'm heading back to the quarry now to meet the team. I'm a little bit nervous because I am a terrible diver. Uh, and I'm going to be flailing about down there like a fool. But I'm in good hands. And it's, um, it's pretty exciting. Can't wait to see what's in there. It's a nice sunny day, so I think... Well, let's hope the visibility won't be too bad. There's plenty of light. So, I'm going in. See you afterwards. Right, see you on the other side. There was quite limited visibility, but we got right down on a huge German artillery piece, German gun. You could see the, the wheels, the barrel stretching off into the murk. And there's a huge stack of equipment from the Second World War. I've never seen anything like it. Just piled one on top of the other, from guns to ventilation ducts to shell cases. And that's just a tiny tiny little part of this quarry that we could that we could see and try and uh, investigate. Goodness knows what's in the rest of it. We didn't even get to halfway down. What a place. I don't think I've seen anywhere like it. So I'm back at the hotel now. I've done the dive. I'm still reeling a bit from what I've just seen. It is pretty remarkable. Uh, and this is definitely the start of a story because these guys are determined to, to raise these objects, to preserve them. And there's a lot down there. It's pretty clear that we did see a K-18 gun, a large artillery piece. Very, very rare indeed. And I think this is going to be a story that runs and runs. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We will certainly be coming back. I feel we had the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. He tells us what is possible, not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you.